You're listening to Fueling the Future of Transport, hosted by Tammy Klein, the founder and CEO of Transport Energy Strategies. We'll talk all about the fuels and energy it takes to keep the world moving forward. Welcome to the show uh, today, everyone. I'm so pleased to have with me John Cooper. John is the Director General of Fuels Europe. Uh, John, welcome to the show. Tammy, thanks. It's great to be here. So I don't even know where to start. There is so much going on uh, in Europe. I mean, you you name it. I don't even know if an hour is even going to be enough uh, to cover the things that I want to talk about uh, with you. But um, I guess what we'll do is dive in and start at the beginning. So for the listeners who may not be familiar, can you talk about what Fuels Europe does, your role, and who your members are? Let's start there. Sure. Sure, thanks. So Fuels Europe is actually the business association for fuels manufacturers in Europe. And we have as our members, all of the companies you would think of as refiners, but we also have companies doing renewable fuels now. And in terms of that production, we are almost all of that production uh, in the business association as members. And that includes uh, many of the big international oil companies, uh, Total, ExxonMobil, Shell, BP, Total, Eni, Repsol, and lots of smaller, well, you know, national and regional players in Europe, and also right down to some of the specialty product uh, producers doing things around asphalt, bitumen, lubricants, etc. Um, but we, as an association, our members provide fuels for almost everything that moves in Europe, actually, apart from obviously electric trains and the growing number of electric cars. But after that, uh, it is aviation fuel, um, uh, road diesel, uh, gasoline, petrol, as we call it in Europe, um, marine fuels, petrochemicals, feedstocks, etc. We're based in Brussels. You might call that the eye of the storm. Uh, we <laughs> thought the storm might be calming down by now, but not at all. It keeps reinventing. Um, we also like have, a category seven or something like that. Oh, yeah, it's up there. <laughs> yeah. And also we have a science organization as part of the legal entity, as part of the overall association, Konkawi, uh, well known to some. Konkawi is now over 60 years old, a strange name, but it's a contraction of the words conservation of clean air and water for Europe. Uh, for the fuels industry. And uh, together, um, they are an association. We are an association of around 55 people covering the Fuels Europe side and Konkawi. And I am the director general for both of those. I've been there about eight years now. Um, It keeps growing. I keep saying I'm eight years into a three-year term. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah, I'm still there. So can you talk about uh, Fuels Europe's Clean Fuels for All campaign and what it's about. So what was the genesis and how is it resonating with policymakers and consumers in the EU? So we should go back to 2015, actually the year I started. I started at the beginning of 2015 and towards the end of 2015, we had the Paris Agreement that was really a landmark for the countries, businesses, citizens. And soon after that, the European Commission, which is kind of the civil service for the European institutions, did a a key piece of work that was called Clean Planet for All, where they looked at a range of scenarios for how to meet both two degrees stabilization and 1.5 stabilization. To cut a long story short, they chose one of those scenarios 
that they called the 1.5 tech scenario. It meant heavy uh, deployment of technology to maintain more or less the life the quality of life standards, the standard of living for European citizens, but to achieve a transformation consistent with 1.5 degrees or Europe's share of that, if you like. And our work started very soon after the Paris Agreement to look at what can the transformation of the fuels industry look like, uh, what kind of technologies, feedstocks, and what kind of trajectory is implied by that work. And we turned that into essentially a strategy for our industry to provide a pathway for, by 2050, all of the remaining liquid fuels demand to be climate neutral. And we could see that some of that could go into each of the sectors. And it meant that both those objectives of meeting quality of life and also climate neutrality could be met with, with, with those remaining products that we would produce. And so we decided to call it Clean Fuels for All, inspired by that name, Clean Planet for All. Mm-hmm. So how have policymakers and consumers uh, resonated? Uh, what's been sort of the outcome since the, the launch uh, to date? I think I'd say over a very large um, constituency in Europe, it's mixed, to be honest. Uh, and I think it's fair to say up until maybe a year ago that the the strategy for electrification got more attention, oh, more political sure. support. Yeah. And that was for not only industry, but for transport as a whole. And so the feedback we got was often lukewarm. In fact, it's probably it's like, best characterized. Meh, we're electrifying, so meh. What is this about? Yeah, yeah, and and meh. so uh, I think it's uh, I think it's fair to say um, that the this sort of simple mental model of electrification of imagining that car connected to a windmill is compelling. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's no doubt it's compelling. You know, we are an industry of engineers. Uh, and scientists and economists and very fact-based people. And you look at that simple notion, it absolutely is a great idea. And there's no doubt that uh, electrification uh, should be well-supported in policy for the transition. We sometimes feel it's a little strange that our proposals for renewable fuels have been in competition to that, and we think that's unfortunate. Um, I think... As the COP process has gone on and the urgency for climate action has become clearer, and let's be clear, we've been very uh, explicit all the way along that we support Europe's objectives, the need for climate action. It absolutely must happen. Our members are committed to that. Uh, that um, that uh, probably up to about a year ago, the, the focus on electrification uh, grew. Mm-hmm. and. But, you know, we we kind of heard repeatedly something along the lines of, okay, we understand you've got a transition, but in terms of refineries overall, essentially we're expecting you to close. In fact, sometimes even was said more explicitly, we need you to close um, in order to meet the 2050 objectives. And we always felt that that was uh, simplistic Mm -hmm. and it kind of overlooked the potential for you to remain with, with some liquid fuels. Right. Also worth saying, of course, we've understood from the beginning uh, with the understanding of science that we have of the advantages and disadvantages of liquid fuels. 
the main disadvantage is being uh, obviously that currently they are largely based on petroleum fuels and therefore you have net release of CO2. Um, also the efficiency challenge uh, from the electric motor. But nevertheless, we also understand very well energy density, the ease of transportation, low costs of transportation and storage, which means that in many applications, some liquid fuels could compete and win into, into different uses there. And so we were always realistic that um, the volume of petroleum would need to decline and mm -hmm. would need to decline quite rapidly towards zero by 2050. Right. But that's a different question from what's the right amount of liquids to be used in that strategy. And yet we saw people struggling with that and assuming that really any liquid fuel was likely to be petroleum. And in order to meet the objectives, it therefore has to trend towards zero. So it was disappointing. Um, yeah. But it's, as I said, it's been mixed. Uh, that's I'm focusing on the reaction there from some of the European institutions. We've also had a growth of activists and campaign groups that have tended to side with the full electrification story quite strongly. And they have gradually grown to be very well resourced, more so than the business groups overall in Brussels. And I think what I'm saying here is that, that um, all of the main industry business groups across energy intensive industries, as well as fuels and automotive, have noticed that the um, the resources available to the campaign groups have grown substantially beyond what the businesses are are, are ready to do. But there's also something about the the way the conversation is uh, is pursued. Businesses tend to think twice or three times before they say anything, and are really quite calculated and um, well calibrated in what they say. And sometimes the, in particular, the Brussels bubble is now full of um, press coverage of more provocative comments that actually don't stand up under scrutiny. But unfortunately, some of that scrutiny doesn't come. Uh, so it's been quite hard work in a number of places. Um, yeah, so that's where we are. Uh, it is fair to say that in uh, in some of the countries, we have a different response. Uh, Europe is a uh, is a block of 27 member states, the European Union. And there are some quite wide variations. And so, yeah, we get some different feedback in some parts of Europe, it's fair to say. So I'm going to come back to that, but I want to go a little bit further into the, the, the policy that's the policies that are, you know, evolving. So as you very well know, and that you're sort of um, um, getting to, so you know that the EU has announced just a, a massive package of policies that are very definitely going to affect the, the fuels and refining industries under Fit for 55 and, and under their, their group, uh, new green deal. Um, and the express purpose is to achieve net zero by 2050. So coming back to what you were just saying and maybe going a little further, do you think my question, you know, do you think that policymakers really actually want a liquid fuels and refining industry in your view, given what's been proposed? And, you know, is their vision strictly, you know, electrification um, at this point? I mean, given everything that's unfolded, it's not just about the new Green Deal and Fit for 55. There's a war in Ukraine. There's been an energy, you know, crisis. 
you know, I look at it as an analyst not based in Europe. And to me, it would seem like logical, plausible, like all hands on deck, all sources, all to to not only reach net zero, but there's like now an energy security element that has kind of gone by the, the, the wayside. So has that aspect kind of changed the game a little bit or pretty much not? <laughs> no, that's a great question. Um, and if I was to summarize where we are with the conversation with the European Commission and quite a lot of the institutions actually right now, it goes something like this. And look, I'm just a sort of you know uh, health warning here. This is an extreme simplification that the conversation that we're hearing back is something like, well, yes, we still need you to close down, but in the meantime, could you produce some more diesel, please? Oh, dear. <laughs> How does that work? I know it, I know it sounds absurd. So that is, that is, those are words that I've picked that genuinely represent what's been said, and they are exact words that have been used. Okay, I've done an extreme shortening there, but that is essentially what we've heard. Uh, of course, there are some nuances around that, but yes, indeed, something significant has changed, at least for the short to medium term. And the focus on energy stability for the, for, for the, for the short term, the medium term is very much there. We've been through some key moments since the, uh, uh, since the invasion of Ukraine. Uh, we've had the events around gas, the Nord Stream, um, pipelines being destroyed and the, pol- the political choice to move very substantially away from Europe, from, from, from Russian gas, and also the same with, uh, with, with Russian crude oil. And it's fair to say that there has been some real, mo- you know, there have been some real moments of tension there, but actually this industry, and we've always said the industry uh, would, would cope, it's coped well. Uh, there's been actually very little price volatility when you consider the sort of 10 times um, factor that was being applied to gas prices, 10 times and above, and short-term electricity prices in parts of Europe were going up by a factor of 100 or 1,000 um, for you know the next 30 minutes of power supply, et cetera. When you consider that the crude oil and the product prices may have uh, varied by you know, a factor of 1.5 or 1.8 or something like that, and that actually the market worked to correct any regional uh, shorts, Actually, we've done what what we've always done as an industry, which is we've managed, we've provided energy security, and we've done it in what we call in the industry silent running. We just kind of get on with it and it happens. Mm-hmm. And to us, sometimes we reflect that it's kind of so easy and we're taken for granted sometimes. Another thing that we reflect on is that really the big industrial policies over the last few years from the EU has been actually led from the climate agenda rather than the energy security or the industrial agenda. And we see that political balance changing across Europe. You know, sometimes we'll say, you know, China has a great industrial policy. Yes. Europe has a climate policy and there's a little bit of it is an industrial policy. China seems to have a great industrial policy, and a part of that is its climate policy. Mm-hmm. And by the way, part of that is also for China to supply um, Europe's needs for various essential components, whether it's photovoltaic cells, uh, windmill facilities, or electric car batteries. Congratulations to China. They have a strategy and it's delivering. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, we are seeing that um, that that Europe has overemphasized climate at the expense of industrial strategy, and it's actually not only refiners that are seeing that now. There are other other countries that are starting to re- really struggle with how Europe competes as a region compared with uh, uh, the other parts of the world. So I'm going to come back to you on that, especially when it comes to the U.S.'s Inflation Reduction Act. But going back to, okay, here's what the situation is. Here's how the policy is, um, you know, is is moving or unfolding. This is what it's like to engage. But let's say that, you know, it wasn't that way. Let's say that the industry was really more received as, you know, uh, a, a partner, you know, and that um, the re- refining and fuels producing industries were seen as, okay, these are assets. We need to make the most of these assets. We know we, that these can contribute to um, our, uh, as a region, achieving net zero. What would that look like then um, for your members for refiners and what kinds of policies either would need to go or you know may need to be created to to better support the industry what does the alternative vision kind of look like great question the first thing i'd say is that the way many member states look at us is significantly different from how it's looked at from Brussels. Right. Member states have got a direct responsibility to make sure that their national economy, their citizens are supplied with energy, and they don't have price shocks or supply shocks. And we know from deep experience over many years that when a refinery announces a stoppage or a closure, it's a major political difficulty for a government at the time. Mm-hmm. And um, that's that's something that has shaped national politics much more than it's shaped European politics. Also noticeable that in Europe, in the European institutions, it tends to be environment and climate departments and environment ministers that come to the European Council minis- uh, um, meetings that make those critical policies that determine the future of our industry. Mm-hmm. It is usually different in member states. So... Uh, what does it look like and what would we need? Well, we've shown and we've got a few examples in Europe of refineries going through deep conversions with very substantial investments on their sites where there are facilities for CCS, there's green hydrogen being produced, there are um, conversions of units to do uh, HVO or renewable diesel, as it would be called in the US, or renewable uh, sustainable aviation fuel, uh, we've got sites now with um, uh, e-fuels being produced or alternative um, advanced biofuels as well. All of those things were set out ourselves by, um, well, working with Konkawi some five years ago, where we described the refinery becoming an energy hub, mm-hmm. noting that most refineries have all, already got very large connections uh, for uh, gas, power, um, deep water jetties in many cases, pipelines, rail. So everything you need for large movements of goods. Mm-hmm. And that means they can be a very good site for a number of different um, you know, low carbon technologies in the future. So that's starting to emerge. We've got, uh, we've got companies like uh, Eni, Total, Nesti, 
uh, already with standalone uh, bioproduction sites uh, based on, on, on the, the old refineries. Now, what kind of policies do you need to make that happen? Well, interestingly, all of those sites were converted before there was a vision hatched by the European Union of road transport fuels going down to zero as a liquid volume by, by 2050. And I have to say, if you're making an investment case, if you look at that as your demand profile, it's not very attractive. Europe has tended to uh, set its policies based very much on aggressive targets, technology bans, and less in the form of support mechanisms to make the investments in the nearer term. And if you combine um, tough targets and uh, technology bans, a trajectory going towards zero, and dare I say it, and this is politically, um, you know, quite, a, uh, quite, quite a difficult one. Windfall taxes on companies that are announced on profits retrospectively, mm-hmm. with a somewhat open-ended uh, law that allows lawmakers to potentially come back in the future. Our industry, certainly as we've experienced it in the recent past, has been cyclical. Maybe one good year out of four or five. If you think there's a chance of windfall tax coming back next time you have a good year then looking five or 10 years ahead, you may make a decision uh, that uh, others would regret earlier. Refineries have to go through turnarounds, and those are very expensive events every four years or so. And we know that demand will uh, shrink in Europe over time, and Europe will have to find a way of making a sensible matching of supply and demand, and also growth of the renewables. And so, yeah, it's it's become quite a challenging environment. One of the things we've said consistently is that to make these energy transition investments, we need policy mechanisms that allow you to have a clear long-term demand at a fair price for that new technology. And that new technology usually means a price higher than the equivalent petroleum product. Mm-hmm. This is what worked for deploying wind and solar. Uh, with uh, contracts for difference, 10-year contracts or something like that. It's very simple. If you're an engineer, you draw draw a spreadsheet for 10 years for your finances. On your top line, you're looking at your demand and the income that you get. And you've got to have a clear view of the policy mechanism that gives you that top line of your spreadsheet to say, here's the income for the project. And if you can describe that policy simply in one chart, you are a much better chance of getting that investment than if you go in and saying, well, we're not sure ha- after what happens, you know, three years after this, um, this could be challenged, uh, this uh, mechanism could change. What I've just described is yeah. actually what an investment made under the IRA would look like in the US versus what uh, a case might look like in Europe. Too much reliance on targets, uh, too much reliance on um, uh, policies that can change at short notice. Uh, not enough thought given to how do I get the investment decision on that project uh, this month, another one in six months, another one in six months, where the investors, the shareholders of a company are all happy that the policy risk there is low and that there's a good chance that that project will make money. We've got ideas on on that. We've presented those ideas. Uh, It sometimes feels as if uh, policymakers, again, they kind of 
They're not sure whether they really need the liquid fuels and whether they should go to that extra stage to give us those policies. Clearly, we have some in aviation now, and uh, some companies are finding ways to make those investments. But there's no doubt we could go further if the policies were more stable, clearer in the signals they were giving. So I want to ask you a couple of follow-up questions. One is, do you see, you talked about the member states, you know, not all of the member states are really in, in lockstep um, mm. with the uh, the European institutions. And um, so you can certainly see that with what's been happening with the T- CO2 uh, standards that were, you know, pretty much all but done until, <laughs> you know, Germany and Italy and a couple of other member states went, whoa, 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 wait, what, what are we doing here? What's about to happen? <laughs> no, we're not doing this. And that's, in my experience, you know, following what happens in Europe is pretty unprecedented. So, my question is, is do you see a balance of power, you know, maybe beginning to tilt uh, back a little bit or or even on these kinds of things where these big, you know, uh, structural, complicated policies are being set and then the member states are like, wait a minute, this is about to get real for us. This is what our market it looks like. This is what's happening in our member state. This doesn't make sense for us do you do you see that happening or is the co2 e-fuels standards e-fuels question more of an isolated sort of issue do you could you see it happening across other sorts of policy proposals we think we can and there are one or two other examples we've recently had farmers in the netherlands uh, protesting because of this was this was European. Sorry, this was national level implementation of European policies um, restricting the um, the nitrogen emissions from uh, from farms in Netherlands, and that's created very significant protests across um, across uh, across Netherlands. We sense that there is uh, something happening uh, with pushback of implementation of European policies, policies certainly. And the fact that we've ended up with something like nine countries, um, with many of those across the east of Europe, joining in with what was started by Italy and then famously joined and then led by Germany in terms of opening up again this whole question of the future of light transport. Um, It's also been notable that uh, these countries have uh, stood firm and so far, I mean, uh, we're we're just a couple of weeks into this, and uh, things may well progress in the next in the next few weeks. But it looks like we're heading towards an endpoint with a clear commitment and a signed declaration from the Commission to make that uh, proposal to include likely e-fuels and renewable climate neutral fuels as an option post 2035. Um, it's yes, it is. It is notable that this happened at an extremely late stage. Uh, we also see, though, that um, the the Commission has really put a huge amount of pressure on many states to fall into line on these different policies, and there has been a great expectation that everyone follows the same line. It appears. And this is a 
personal judgment that there may be an element of overplaying their hand there. Mm-hmm. It also certainly comes back to this point about setting targets, that really what the European Commission seem to be looking for here is the achievement of setting very ambitious targets. And in reality, setting the target is not the hardest part of the achievement. The achievement is the rate of progress. Yeah. And in the case of deploying electric cars, that rate of progress would have to be achieved largely by the member states through the application of subsidies and tax breaks, delivering what now looks like more expensive cars to consumers anyway. Mm-hmm. And when you then add into the mix what is now happening live in Europe, which is the reduction in the total number of jobs in the auto industry, we don't think it's surprising. We've actually been pointing out these challenges for some for some two, three, four years, that it is simply true that while the operating cost of an electric car is lower, all of the other costs around it are higher. And so setting that target and expecting countries to implement that in front of their citizens is now a more apparent challenge. And so there you are with eight, you know, eight or nine um, countries, including some of the poorest in Europe, now pushing back. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting to, you know, to kind of observe. I mean, we had the, um, you know, yellow vest movement in France, which I don't think has really gone away. Maybe it's just not as, as publicized. Um, I do... You know, equity is a big thing here in the U.S., Um, you know, equity in terms of the application of and and the impact um, of uh, regulations, incentives, policies on um, the citizenry, especially those that are low income. Um, I do wonder um, about the potential impact you know, are we going to see more yellow vests? Because people are just going to throw up their hands and say, these are not for me. This does not reflect uh, mm-hmm. my life. Um, and, um, you know, will will we, you know, will there be more outcry on that? And they'll be right because mm-hmm. it doesn't really fit um, these folks' lives. So I don't know if you have a, a view on that um, in terms of, you know, the p- potential impacts that we could see as Fit for 55 pieces of it really begin to move toward final passage, enactment, if you will, and then, you know, implementation. The politics is is, is emerging. I mean, it's fair to say that most of the work that's been done on Fit for 55 has been done in the Brussels bubble. And probably the average European citizen will not know very much about that. This is one of those policies that actually has risen to the top of the headlines because ultimately this regulation that is legally applicable to car manufacturers is actually really a regulation on what citizens can and cannot buy. And also on, of course, on the you know the, the, the jobs that they can and cannot have. Mm-hmm. And It's notable as well also in the last 20 years that the car industry in Europe has actually uh, shifted towards the east with major uh, factories in Hungary, Poland, Slovakia, uh, I guess because of lower labor costs there, but that has been a, a fact. And those regions 
are clearly seeing that jobs are at risk and in future their competition will be with China that has a clear advantage also in terms of access to the raw materials and, an, and, a, and a, a starting advantage in having more um, you know, uh, rare metals processing facilities and refining for for those for those um, those key materials. So that's 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 clearly emerging. Um, we actually looked at the economics of car purchase. We asked a small consultancy in Netherlands to do this for us, looking at a number of countries. And what's really interesting is that already the evidence is that the countries on that eastern border, those that mostly have joined this uh, coalition, already most of those citizens cannot afford a new car full stop Mm -hmm. and are reliant almost entirely on a second-hand car market from Germany and other wealthier countries. And if you then jack up the price of your starter car by 10 or 15,000 euros, that changes much in a much worse picture. And now that we can see more clearly that the EV is likely to be either significantly more expensive or significantly less capable than your fifteen to twenty thousand um, starter ICE car, and I think that's part of the the um, the factor that you now see. So the last thing that I, I want to to ask you about is uh, coming back to the Inflation Reduction Act in the U.S. So. As you know, uh, (laughs) the Americans were sort of, I don't know where we all were, but we were not on the climate uh, bandwagon for about the last four or five years. And then last year, I would say actually in in 2021, we passed the bipartisan, um, the the bipartisan infrastructure uh, law, which had lots and lots of provisions uh, related to energy, clean energy and climate. And then the IRA uh, last year, which is probably the, which I know it is the single biggest climate down payment energy ever really undertaken in the U.S., $369 U.S. billion. So, um, you know, it's a massive package, right? It covers everything from batteries, carbon capture and storage, low carbon fuels, sustainable aviation fuel, hydrogen, clean energy, uh, clean electricity production. So I look at the U.S. and I look at the entreatment by the EU policymakers about, oh, no batteries, oh, I don't know, no electric vehicles. And it's, you know, do you want to make any changes? And the Americans are going to be like, no. <laughs> this is not happening. Um, I do not see, you know, re reopening or anything like that. There, like this train has left the station. The Americans did this on purpose. They don't necessarily care about the WTO. They this is about what you were talking about with China. It's having an industrial plan. It's about energy uh, security. It is also uh, about compl- uh, uh, the climate, but it is about you know, bringing yeah, the U.S. into, you know, competitiveness in these areas. So how concerned are you um, and your members um, are about what the IRA, you know, could do to the competitiveness of the industry in general? Um, and, you know, what is your reaction to what the commission has proposed so far? I mean, I just look at like reallocation of funding, like, oh, okay, and that's, it's already on the books, but whatever. Um, permitting could be interesting because I think that's a real p- 
pinch point um, for the U.S., um, but I look at the response and it's like, that's not really, I think, going to overcome what I think is about to happen in, in the U.S. So what's your reaction and, and what are the members um, saying? Because I think this could be really hmm. interesting for the industry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, first of all, I'd just like to say I do agree with your your assessment of the of the politics. I'm um, certainly not an expert on U.S. politics. I do follow uh, spent portion of my career in uh, New Jersey, mm-hmm. uh, another portion what? in Cleveland, Ohio. Belly um, of the beast. <laughs> yeah. So actually, yeah, I've, I've, and I've continued to follow U.S. politics. The, I mean, the, one of the first points is that you know this was a, um, a a finely balanced conclusion of that whole discussion, ultimately well supported across right. the, uh, the 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 politics of the U.S. And the other point that I would make is, let's look at the headline number. What is the headline number? It's an amount of money that will get spent. I'm sure it'll get spent on making progress. Right. Whereas your equivalent number in the in Europe is a target number, right? And back to my earlier point that setting an, an ambitious target does not make an investment case. Right. And so that emphasis is the complete opposite and it's exactly what we've been pushing for in europe is give us a reason to make the progress right and the fact that it's a clear price signal that can go into a spreadsheet uh, with some degree of certainty that that'll remain for years some years to come mm-hmm. with um, you know a low likelihood of a political shock that would that would change that because of the fact that it was a basically a cross party uh, yeah. support that got us there uh, i i mean, come back to my situation imagine walking into the ceo's office with your team saying here we've got this proposal for an investment it costs a billion dollars or a billion euros and you get to that section where you say well what's the policy risk in this for a us based U.S. production of renewable or low-carbon technology, you're looking at a slide that is one slide that explains that and gives a very positive message. Whereas if you're doing that in Europe, you're likely walking in with 20 or 30 slides with a lot of ifs and buts and identified risks, which are things like a review of this comes up at this point. This feedstock or this technology is not guaranteed to be accepted as sustainable beyond such and such. Um, or we don't know what price point this uh, regulation creates in the market. Even though the demand may be there, if the if the fair price is not going to be there, you would choose another place to make that investment. Mm-hmm. And in today's modern world, many countries, and for, I'd, I'd, fair, I'd also um be safe, I think, in saying the money that Europe needs to see to flow into Europe to achieve achieve its objectives is mostly money that is globally mobile, and it has choices as to where it gets invested. And right now, uh, I'm hearing time and time again that if you're looking at how to do CCS or green hydrogen or sustainable aviation fuel or renewable fuel for, for road transport, it looks more attractive in the U.S., because of the safety of those long-term signals that translate into a rate of progress. That's the sad thing that we have to look at in Europe. We are making that clear, and we're trying to bring forward solutions to that. One thing we can immediately identify as an advantage in the US there is the fact that US has a a federal tax code based on this huge 
taxation system for, right. for, for the US, and they're able to do that. The EU does not have a common tax code. Tax is very, very fiercely protected as an individual country um, responsibility. And that means we can't replicate the same. So we're simply pushing for things that can have the same effect at the investment spreadsheet business case level. Do you think the commission is listening or gets this? And the and the potential, you know, I mean, I I think there could be some real fallout over the next year or two as investment as as there are as there is clarity brought into and uh some of the way the the tax provisions are are interpreted by the treasury department here in the US and the tax credits begin to to get implemented and people are making their investment decisions so let's say 1 to 2 years you know do you think the commission really gets the you know severity of this situation because i look at it and i don't think i'm overstating it to say that this is potentially really <laughs> problematic. We think it is, and I should say, the, all of the energy intensive industries that we are talking to are saying the same thing. I have been involved in meetings with the commission where we jointly say that. I do believe the commission are listening. I'm not sure we're seeing yet any route towards uh, significant remediation, if you like. I think a lot of focus so far has gone into trying to persuade the US to make some changes and allowances. I come back to your assessment earlier that I think we agree with that uh, such changes are likely to be to be really minimal. Um, the nature of the political balance around this in the US really would make it extremely difficult. You know, we work with politicians on the other side of the Atlantic, but we know just how it works. It's very, very. It's going to be very, very difficult to reopen things. Uh, so right now we don't see what is the route forward. At least we do feel as if we're being heard. The chemicals industry, the steel industry, fertilizers, uh, cement, ceramics, etc. They're all saying the same thing. That if you've got the money, their members would likely, more than likely, put it into a U.S.-based project if they have that choice. So yeah, it's. Uh, it's a strange time for European industries. We're amongst those. Uh, we have the added complication of the um, the unconditional love for the electrified vehicle. I should say somewhere, let's be really clear, we're engineers. We absolutely realize electrification should make a major mm -hmm. uh, contribution to, to uh, decarbonization. Yeah. Um, in many applications, it is excellent. Uh, it will continue to improve. It's just a question of whether it really has earned um, and justified the need for essentially banning a perfectly scientific uh, alternative or com complement to that, which is which is vehicles running with renewable fuels. And we remain concerned about what the real drivers are behind a, a proposed ban of the internal combustion engine. And that for us is, is that added complication that makes it a stage harder to make a, a major investment in transition in Europe. Yeah, I think, uh, and, and we'll uh, leave it at this. I mean, I, I've been involved in bands um, before. They really backfire. There's ways to deal with uh, issues like that without 
a ban. And I fear that um, by going that route, instead of mm. really working, focusing on the positive of, of, the, of the scale up and making the infrastructure work for consumers and, you know, and, and so on and so forth, that, um, yeah, we, we could see some real backlash there. Bans just never work. And there's ways to deal with those issues without going that route. And it just, it just leaves out technology of which e-fuels I think is, is an interesting, uh, Hmm. one. We don't know what technologies are going to come out of the void, Hmm. you know? And I think that's the thing that's, you know, we need to create the policy environment, um, and the incentive environment you know, that allows those to come forward. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I might be in the minority <laughs> on that, but oh. I've been in the business for a long time. I just yep. have seen it happen so many times. And I just have never seen a banned situation except for lead in transport mm-hmm. energy um, that was um, really executed well and really achieved it, its purpose. I think lead's the only one I can think of. Mm, that's a good. Uh, that's a good example. Uh, the the one thing we haven't mentioned here is what happened in terms of our industry and um, what was needed to respond in Ukraine. And there are several of our members around the east that have been involved in changing logistics and and uh, obviously they've had to change their crude supplies. But they've also been deeply involved in making sure that Ukraine and all the associated logistics get supplied as well. Those thoughts are already starting up as to what does the rebuilding of Ukraine look like and what would the logistics look like. But already today, just as a you know a factoid that Bloomberg reported a few weeks ago, um, since the start of the war, there's been over half a million diesel generators put into, into Ukraine. You know, liquid fuels remains the most flexible, uh, ready solution that can step in for industry. Mm-hmm. Uh, during the gas crisis, when gas prices were at the highest, we saw significant shifting out of gas into liquid fuels for industry, um, for um, for more chemicals, feedstock, uh, including also in our own refineries using portions of the barrel rather rather than gas. Um, and liquid fuels is always there. It's actually a form of backstop for energy security. And it's performed extremely well in what it's done for, for, for Ukraine. And we still struggle to understand how people can make an assumption that you can move away from a system with that's currently got, we have 90 days stocks, emergency stocks spread mm-hmm. across Europe. Um, and uh, we can move that from A to B overnight <laughs> in many cases. Uh, we have the pipelines networks. Uh, we have multiple ways of uh, importing and exporting. It's an incredibly flexible system. And the system together with the market gives you that energy security and stability. The countries, the member states, we think are understanding that very well now. It still hasn't really made it into um, the core of European policies. But let's be optimistic. I think uh, the, the direction is slowly going in, 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 in that way. And um, we hope we'll have a, a better conversation around energy transition and how our industry plays into that as that develops as a subject. Well, John, thank you so much for being on the show today. It's been a real pleasure to have you and to really talk, you know, very frankly about the issues. 
Thank you. It's been, uh, we've covered quite a lot of ground in the last half an hour or so. Sure uh, thanks did. for the opportunity. Thank you. <laughs> You've been listening to Fueling the Future of Transport. This show is hosted and edited by Tammy Klein, produced by Carolyn Schneer and engineered by Alexander Nikolic. To hear more great episodes of this show, learn more and sign up for a free bi-weekly newsletter, visit transportenergystrategies.com.